What better way to prepare to consider beauty and wonder than one of David's Psalms? Please stand as I read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. May you please to pray with me before we continue to meditate on this psalm. Father, we have already seen um, your extravagance towards us. And the songs that we have sung as we celebrate the creation around us and the sign of your gospel and baptism and the beauty of music, these are all from you, pointing us to your beauty and to your greatness. And we pray now as we gaze at your word that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to see you more clearly, to see how our deepest desires find their answer in you, that we ourselves would be made more beautiful. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning I'd like to talk with you about something I suppose we could say is a bit personal, and that is desire. Our, our longings. Now, churches are not known for talking about this. We talk more often about our belief, what we think, and that's good. And we, we talk about our actions, how we should live, and that's good as well. But we seem to be get, get a little bit more bashful when we're talking about our desires. Perhaps it's because we feel like maybe we shouldn't be desiring, that, that as a Christian we're supposed to just be content without wanting anything. But of course that's not true. In fact, our desires perhaps define who we are almost more than anything else. Aren't they things that shape you more deeply, your desires are? Now scripture is not shy about speaking of our desires, of our longings. In fact, you can find them speaking to them in almost every page of your Bible. And that's certainly true in the passage that we have just read. Perhaps you noticed. From the beginning, we have language of desire. 
speaks of running after things. It speaks of pleasance, you know, like you are my portion, my cup, the boundary lines lie in pleasant places. There's, there's pleasure that's being described of. There's fullness of joy. This is a psalm that is on one hand about trust. In you, Lord, I take refuge. And yet it is also about desire. Because for David, he does not see these as two separate things. To trust God is to realize that in him is the fulfillment of all of our desires. And in fact, if we want to understand what this psalm is about, perhaps the, the, the thesis statement comes at the very beginning. It's going to be really what guides our understanding throughout this, this time this morning, where he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And that word good could just as easily be said, I have nothing desirable, nothing beautiful. Lord, in you and you alone are all the answer to my desires. Now, this whole thinking about desire, though I say the church doesn't do it that much, there are certain thinkers throughout the ages that have spent a lot of time thinking about desire. Augustine is one of them. Augustine lived you know, more than 1,600 years ago, and he's one of the, the great church theologians. For many years, he wasn't a Christian. He was earnestly striving after being happy, and it was futile until he became a Christian. And then, as he came to start understanding Scripture, he realized that his problem had never been that he desired. Desire is part of what makes us human. His problem is that he had been desiring wrongly that his desires were disordered. He came to realize that all of the things that we delight in, all the things that we call beautiful, all of our desires are meant to point us upward to the God who makes all things. Every time we enjoy something good, it is supposed to be an echo, a reminder of the beauty and glory of God so that it draws us nearer to God. That's when things are rightly ordered. But our problem is that we hold on and try to grab those good things and forget about the God they are meant to point us towards. We elevate something that's supposed to be secondary and we make it primary. And that's where things break down. And really, all he's doing is he is reflecting on the verse that we've just said. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That is rightly our order of desires. What we desire is to say, I want these good things apart from you. That's disorder. In fact, the word that scripture uses for that, for when we are seeking after things and try to ignore the God who gives them to us, that word is idolatry. And that's why David naturally moves from saying, I do not want anything apart from you, to speaking about idolatry. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings, shall multiply their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He brings this up because he realizes that any time we look to anything other than God to satisfy us, when we say, God, you are not enough, what you have for me is not enough, I'm going to look elsewhere in addition, that is idolatry. Now, in David's time, idols were fairly obvious. When you went and said, Baal, I want this from you, or Molech, I want this from you, I'm going to make this sacrifice, that was clearly betraying God. That was idolatry. Today, it's subtler, isn't it? Our idols have different names, like comfort, security, even sometimes family. 
All of these are good things. But the moment we see them not as part of our relationship to God, where God is blessing us and providing and we give glory to God for them, but we see them as the thing that we are pursuing above all else, then they become our idols. And notice here that when David speaks against them, his problem is not just that they are immoral, although of course they are, it's that ultimately they are undesirable. What does he say? He says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. To pursue idols always ends in misery. And if we think about it for a moment, we see that that's true. If we were to try to encapsulate what is the advice of our day, it probably, especially if we watch Disney movies or any other show, would be something like this. Follow your heart, no matter what. And translated, I think what that's saying is don't listen to your parents or family. Don't listen to friends. Don't even listen to God. That's never explicit, but it's always implied. Just listen to your heart and do whatever it tells you. I think the question that we should ask is why? Why do we trust our heart, even above God himself? You know, when I was five years old, if I listened to my heart, I would be eating all of my Halloween candy all at one time and I'd be sick. When I was in fifth grade, if I listened to my heart, I wouldn't go to school and I would stay up late playing video games. Why is it now that when I listen to my heart, now I can know that my heart is supremely trustworthy, more trustworthy than God himself? That doesn't make sense. And really, there isn't any good evidence around us that this advice is good. I mean, look around us and what do we see? We see people chasing don't we? People who are following their heart, chasing happiness, and chasing it as they try to accumulate comfort, or as they try to satisfy themselves with family, and when that doesn't work, maybe satisfy themselves with an affair. They're following their heart, or they follow their heart to, to try to be successful in work. People just keep on chasing, but, but, but are they ever actually finding? It seems to me that, at least in the area that we live in, people are really good at appearing happy. They are awesome at looking happy. But I'm not so sure people really are good at actually being happy. And David has an explanation for that. Since the sorrows of those who run after idols will only multiply. And so he says, that is not going to be me. I am going to flee from idolatry. I am not going to offer offerings to them. I'm not even going to take their names on my lips. Because in you, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. One of the things the psalm has to teach us about desire is that for us to truly place our faith in God is to turn away from idols. And so it's worth asking ourselves, where are our idols? Where are our hearts tempted to run away from God to something else to satisfy us? We all have these temptations. If you want to spot them, perhaps one of the easiest places to start looking is where you find yourself having uncontrollable emotions. Where you find yourself irrationally angry about something and you don't know why. 
or when you find yourself just having an ongoing, overwhelming anxiety about something, or when you find yourself surprisingly brought low for reasons you can't fully explain, these are often signs of a disordered love, where you're looking outside of God, away from God, for your heart to be desired, to have its desires met, and your sorrows are being multiplied. And what scripture calls us to do is to name our idols and confess them and seek to turn away from them. It's where our, our psalm begins in counseling us what to do with our desires. But that's only the beginning of where David takes us. It's not just enough to know what we should desire away from. It's even more important to understand where our desires are pointed. To understand when we're saying, in you, O Lord, I have no good apart from you, we're saying, in you, Lord, all of my desires are fulfilled. And that, that is where he takes us in the psalm, isn't it? Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those are just beautiful words, aren't they? Um, he's, he's probably alluding to the, the book of Joshua. When, when God's people entered Canaan, God then apportions the whole lands to, to everyone so they have different inheritances. And, and what David is saying is, as I look at the land you've apportioned me, as I look at the life you've given me, I am satisfied. It is beautiful. Now, before we kind of get cynical and say, well, of course, David could say that, you know, he had, you know, he was living out the American dream and, or whatever the Israel version of that was. No, that's, that's really not the case. We have to look deeper and understand actually what David's story was like. David was a person who for many years was a fugitive, always fearing for his life as the king of the nation was trying to kill him. David is a person, as he got older, who experienced deep grief as his newborn son died in infancy. And then his grief extended as one of his most beloved sons first killed another one of his children for incest issues and then formed a coup and sought to kill him. David was a man who experienced deep, profound suffering. And so how is it that he can say, I look at my life that you have given me and these lines of my inheritance, they have fallen in pleasant places. It's beautiful. Well, the answer, I think, is found in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, that, that word when he speaks about fullness of joy, fullness here is the word that most often is used in terms of eating, when you've had a feast and you don't want anything more. That's the kind of fullness that's being described here. And he's saying, you have given me so much joy that I feel full. I don't need anything more. Isn't that, isn't that what we want? To have our hearts so satiated with joy that we feel no further desire. He says, I have it. And where does he have it? In your presence, literally, before your face. Lord, as I draw near to you, as I see you face to face, I am profoundly satisfied. 
See, what David sees here is what we need to see as well, and that's that it's not just that God is good and worthy of our service. And it's not just that God is true and therefore reasonable to believe in. It's that God is beautiful and worthy of all of our desires. In fact, it's not enough only to say that God is beautiful. It's that God himself is beauty. He is the one who is the heart of all beauty, of all glory, of all joy. When when David says, I have no good that is apart from you, he can say that because all beauty, all that is delightful is found in God himself. This, This is a theme we actually find throughout scripture. We just miss it because scripture doesn't usually use the language of beauty. It uses a different word. It uses the word glory. But what is glory but the beauty and awe-inspiring majesty of God? And it fills the earth around us. Now there's this section where the prophet Isaiah speaks of how he was given this vision where he sees God himself and he's terrified. And as he, he looks at God, he sees these fiery creatures named seraphim and all day and all night they just sing one song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Everywhere we look, everything we see, we are told, is filled with the glory of God. You know, our experience is kind of like when we go out and experience the, you know, like daylight and there's brightness and there's warmth and we feel delight in it. What we're experiencing is not just brightness and warmth. We're experiencing the sun as it shines upon us. In the same way as we experience beauty. I mean, have you ever had this feeling where there is this joy, but yet even as you experience joy, there's this sense of a deeper longing. A longing that maybe you could somehow be even closer to what you're experiencing or that you could just hold on and it would never let go. That, that joyful longing is us seeing beauty as it points beyond itself to the God that is at the center of it. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. C.S. Lewis speaks about this in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open this inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much, the secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation we come close to mentioning it, we grow awkward and pretend to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell though we desire to do both, we cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. He says, we usually give this experience a name. Maybe it's the name beauty or nostalgia as we experience a longing for the past. But he argues that those things, quote, in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but, 
But here's the especially important part of this quote, I think. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Do you know what he's talking about? He's saying that there is an experience we have, a longing that we have that no natural happiness can satisfy. You know, one person I read wrote that beauty is the clue by which we might understand all of reality. Because beauty points beyond itself. It is meant to point us upward to the God who is the ultimate answer to all of our longings. You know, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And what that says is that when we look and we see the stars upon stars and we realize there's billions of them and we cannot even fathom how big the space is and we realize how small we are, if we listen carefully, the stars are singing to us that we are but a mirror of the glory and greatness of the God who made us. Or when we experience a child being born and with tears in our eyes we say, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. There is something in that moment that is calling beyond itself as we see life and the joy of life and we are pointed backwards to the one who is the source of life itself, God. Or when we are in those moments where we are with people and we feel close and together and connected and there's just joy and friendship or family, there's something in that moment that's pointing beyond itself to the beautiful love between Father, Son, and Spirit from which all other love comes. Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. All the beauty we experience every moment of our lives points beyond itself to our deepest longing. Our longing is for the beautiful, glorious God. And this is why David can say that anyone who runs after idols will only have their sorrows multiplied because all people are doing is they're running after the echo of what they're longing for and their hearts will be broken. This is why he can say, even in the midst of suffering, in your presence is fullness of joy because he knows that in God is the answer to his deepest longings. And so trusting God means coming to understand the truth that in you I have all, my, all of my desires are satisfied in you and nowhere else. You know, many of you desire to make something of your life, to do something of significance. That is a good desire. And the answer to that desire is found in God as he calls you to a specific life, as he invites to work through you as he bestows his glory upon you. Many of you have a desire for connection to people, whether that's family or friendship, and that is a good desire, and the answer to it is found in God, who himself is love, and who is the one with whom you most desire a relationship. The desire you have for home, for security, 
for satisfying joy, all of these desires are ultimately answered in our good and true and beautiful God. And for us to truly be able to rest in this, it's not just enough to know this. We also need to know one other really important thing. And that is this God whom we so deeply desire is a God who deeply delights to extravagantly pour out his beauty upon us. That is something we see throughout scripture from beginning to end. Just think of how God creates the world. It says, in the beginning, God created, and he says, let there be, and there was. And what does he say after? He looks at it and says, this is good. Let there be, and there was, this is good. What is he saying? He is delighting in the fact that he is creating it with his beauty, and he's doing that for us. In fact, it says in chapter 2 that when he makes the trees, they are good to eat and beautiful to look at. Because God is a God who loves showering his beauty upon us. There's this remarkable passage many centuries later in Deuteronomy. When, when Israel, as they enter the land, here is a command they are given. They are told, take one-tenth every year of your income and go to the presence of God, whether that's the tabernacle or temple. And it says, buy whatever your heart desires for food, for drink, for wine, and eat it in God's presence and rejoice. Can you imagine that feast? One-tenth of your income, eating and drinking whatever you want and rejoicing. And the whole purpose of that was for them to realize that this beauty, this joy they were experiencing is coming from God because he loves to extravagantly pour his beauty upon us. We see this in Jesus, don't we? Jesus doesn't just come so that our sins can be forgiven. That's only a step towards something far greater. Blessed, he says, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And all of his life is geared towards showing us the face of God so that we might see him. So he says to Philip right before he dies, don't you know that when you see me, you see the Father? I have come so that you might see the face of God, so that you might enjoy his beauty. And then Ephesians tells us that God saved us through Jesus so that, quote, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? His desire is to save you so that he can pour his beauty upon you for all eternity and that you can savor it and delight in it and rejoice. Our God's deep desire is to pour out in an extravagant fashion his beauty upon you so that you can delight in it and that you can be satisfied. When you see that, then your heart has the capacity to turn from idols and to say, Lord Jesus, I have no good apart from you. Before your face, I am satisfied with joy. When, when you can say that and say it truthfully because you understand how much God loves you, then are you finally equipped to fulfill your life calling. And do you know what your life calling is more than anything else? Well, if you grew up hearing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you've heard, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever or to use the language you're using this morning, it is to savor the beauty of God and to share the beauty of God. 
Let me ask you, do you see your lifelong calling as savoring the beauty of God? The whole earth is filled with his glory. If you even look around you right now and see the faces of others or we go outside and see the sun shining and see the trees and the grass, we are seeing the beauty of God if only we are paying attention to it. One of my favorite novels by Wendell Berry, it's called Jaber Crow. There's this one moment where at the very end he's walking through the forest and he reflects and he says, something wild is always blooming, things of intricate, limitless beauty. Often I fear I am not paying enough attention. Are you paying enough attention? As God, even now, in this world, as broken as it is, he is still showering his beauty upon you, inviting you to savor it, and savor it in such a way that you look and see what a beautiful God we have. Are you savoring the beauty of God? Are you savoring the beauty of God as we gather together because the beauty of God more than anything else is seen in the gospel in the face of Christ Jesus? As we saw this baptism, a sign of God's love, as we come before the table, a sign of God's love, as we sing, as we just reflect on the gospel, do you see his beauty? Because Jesus was not just righteous and he was not just truthful, he was beautiful. He is beautiful in his life, in his words, and above all in his love. Are you savoring the beauty of God? Because let me tell you what happens when we do. When we begin really turning our face towards God's beauty and savoring it, we are transformed. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians said that as we turn our faces to behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that as we gaze at the beauty of God, God makes us more and more beautiful. We are changed by savoring God's beauty. And that means we as a church have this, this glorious calling to share God's beauty with the world around us. Some of us, as we were talking about before, have that as, as their gifts, as their vocation, whether it's with music or with art or with writing. As you show beauty, you are pointing beyond what you are doing to the God who is the source of all beauty. But all of us have the opportunity with our lives as we experience joy. That is beautiful to the world. As we show the love of Christ, that is beautiful to the world. As we speak of the gospel of Jesus, we are showing forth God's beauty. We are the means by which he might pour in an extravagant fashion his beauty upon the world around us. And it begins with our heart learning what it means to say, Lord, you are my Lord, and I want no good apart from you. Even right now, I invite us to turn our hearts towards that. We have this opportunity, as we do every week, to confess. And I invite, as we have been thinking about where our idols are, where we have been looking apart from God for our joy, to even now take a moment to confess those things that our heart might learn to pay attention to where the source of true joy and beauty is. And in a moment, then, I will lead you together in prayer. Let's, let's take a moment in silent confession before our loving, beautiful God.
Father, your love for us is beyond our capacity to understand. We do not know why, even as we turn away from you, yet you would choose to love us and that you would desire to fill us with delight. Lord, we confess our idols and we regret them and we are sorry. Lord, where we have not placed our faith in you, where we have looked elsewhere to fill our hearts, where only you can satisfy us, Lord, please forgive us. We ask that your spirit would enable us to see, to taste, to know your goodness, that we might delight in you and find our satisfaction in you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Thanks be to God.